Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. And I'm really glad you could join me as we're going to get the chance to speak with Wendy Hardenot. And we have a great conversation touching on a wide, wide range of topics. This is one of those interviews that I really love because we go all over the place. But in particular, thinking about design, architecture, and also we talk about the Gather Foundation, which is working with children in designing spaces and seeking their input. I really enjoyed talking to Wendy because when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm a lawyer. So I helped her set up Gather Foundation, which is what we end up talking a lot about in this interview. If you enjoy this conversation, then don't forget that this is episode 304. So there's absolutely dozens and dozens and dozens of other conversations with inspiring Kiwis about the work that they're doing and what it is that's shaped them into who they are today. And if you're listening in a podcasting app, then why not hit subscribe and leave a rating and review? It'd be really appreciated. Now let's get into this conversation with Wendy. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Wendy Hodenot, who's the founder of Gather Landscape Architecture and the Gather Foundation. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation because we've known each other a couple of years now. Yep. And um, I was involved in, in helping you set some things up. Yeah. and been watching what you're doing yeah. and watching it grow and so I'd love to find out about kind of your your work and your philosophy around involving people in the process of designing mm. but before we talk about that mm-hmm. I'd like to go back in a time machine yeah. <laughs> and find out about people's histories so yeah. in your case can you tell us about your life when you're say five or six years old Sure. Yeah. Well, I grew up here in Christchurch, uh, close to the hills, and I loved playing outdoors. That was my favorite thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents bought a section, yeah, close to the hills and built a house there on a quarter acre in the 1960s and uh, still live there. And they, um, yeah, they designed the house themselves. At the time, they were... I was going to say place cadets, but no, that's the name of the program we've developed. They were uh, architectural cadets at the Ministry of Works here in Christchurch. Yeah, they they met there, and my mum, who was training as well, it was really unusual for a woman to be um, an architect Mm. in those days, Um, but she knew that's what she wanted to do from when she was very young, and so she pursued that. That's cool. So what era is that? What sort of years are you talking when Uh, she was studying, I mean? But that was 1956 okay. when she first when she first entered the Ministry of Works. Yeah, um, I think she was 18. Yeah, so, yeah, because the 50s, like that. Yeah, it was a different era, wasn't it? Like we're going yeah. back in time, and it was you're so right. It probably wasn't as common for a woman to go and do a architectural related thing. No, it wasn't, and she um, she didn't know any other women that were studying mm. um, architecture, and in fact, she was actively discouraged from studying that when she was at school and right. um but she knew that's what she wanted to do so mm. she she pursued it and was really even more ambitious than my dad at that stage he he entered a year later he remembers seeing her when they worked at the um in the old government building in cathedral square mm-hmm. and um and uh yeah he wasn't she had to work really hard because um Women in those days weren't allowed to study technical drawing, so she had to produce her own portfolio hmm. to get into, um, yeah, to start 
working in that area. And uh, yeah, so it was super hard for yeah. her. What yeah. do you think gave her that ambition or that desire to specialize in that area? Was it something she'd like as a child she'd love drawing and then she saw this as an opportunity or yeah she said that she remembers talking to her mother and her mother drawing a plan of the house that she used to live in right and mum seeing this plan and thinking wow i can actually create a space through drawing something on a piece of paper Hmm. and and actually it can come to life and so i think she was around eight at that stage and she just knew from that point that's what she wanted to do wow it's amazing to me because you know thinking about what you do today and that that's like an intergenerational legacy (laughs) (laughs) going back to your mother but then your grandmother as well it sounds like yeah yeah for sure (laughs) that she was that she thought to do that to explain yeah Yeah. to convey that information graphically yeah Yeah. that's awesome so growing up um did you have siblings and was it a outdoor childhood or what were were you up to yeah so i had two younger sisters and um we shared a driveway with our neighbors who also had a quarter acre section okay so we had a half a half acre section between us with lots of trees eventually in the property after a few years and um we used to, you know, roam the neighborhood like you did back then, and that was my favorite thing to do. I I just loved getting out and about and got into trouble a lot um, <laughs> for doing that. Um, but, yeah, it was just something I... It just seems really innate. And I think, um, you know, my parents it used to tear their ha- hair out with it, but we used to go on a lot of intrepid holidays around the South Island. We didn't go beyond... The South Island, but they they took us in a little caravan on some very dusty, narrow roads up, you know, Bannockburn gold fields. Not with the caravan, but um, I remember freaking out at some of the places we would go, and I think that too was something that they passed on to me. That sort of um, love of adventure and the New Zealand landscape and mm. um, my outdoor. Um, yeah, just being outside in nature and mm. and uh, experiencing that physically. Mm. Yeah, well, it sounds like a pretty good childhood then, really. Yeah. <laughs> Outdoors and adventures and yeah. um, parents who cared for you, clearly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they did. And, um, yeah, and, you know, I had a great uh, school life. Um, I loved primary and intermediate school. Mm-hmm. But once I got to high school, I wasn't quite so interested in uh, study. It became a lot more serious at that point. Mm-hmm. I think um, the primary schools that I went to had a lot of opportunity for um, sort of more the creative arts, I guess, and music and mm-hmm. making things, which I really enjoyed doing. Um, but when I got to high school, I was much more interested in my social life and academic life just seemed so... Yeah. Right. So there wasn't any subject that sort of jumped out to you, you know. Because sometimes you talk to people and they're like, "Oh, I just knew I I loved mathematics," you know, right from the beginning. Or biology was my thing. There was nothing that sort of was like, "This is this is it." Not really, but um, I was good at geography and uh, English, Mm -hmm. and I enjoyed those subjects. And the teachers too inspired me in that respect. yeah, but it wasn't really until I was in my 30s that I became really interested in um, pursuing further study. And so, um, yeah, high school, yeah, I was... So yeah. when you got to the end of high school, 
Yeah. Did you know what you were going to do next? Or? Well, not really. It, you know, as I say, it wasn't really until my 30s I really started thinking about that. But I, I did go to teacher's college for a couple of years uh-huh. um, before I had my son, Josh. Mm-hmm. And uh, then while I was at home with him, I was um, I trained to be a florist. And so I was doing weddings and, um, yeah, hotel arrangements, that kind of thing, while the children were young. Mm-hmm. Um and then it wasn't until my sister one day, and I was I was sort of really feeling a bit um, sort of like I wanted to get out and about, and I was tired of being at home and um, thinking about the next step. And my sister said to me, "Well, you really love gardening and you love design. Um, what about landscape architecture?" And um, I guess that just at that point, I thought, "Wow, yeah, of course, that makes sense." Mm. Um, I'll I'll give that a go, and so I went to an open evening for Lincoln University, and um, and found that I was really interested in the social sciences as well um, as design, and uh, so started out by just doing one paper that fed into both courses, and initially um, followed the social science path, which was which had. A number of papers that actually fed into the landscape architecture degree as well. Mm. Um, so I was studying history of design and culture and um, urban and regional planning, but I really loved the social side of things too and the political aspects of uh, life and issues of social justice and and uh, really wanted to understand more about how society worked. Um, right. Well, a shout out to your sister for having the vision to <laughs> to mention that. Yeah, I'm really grateful <laughs> it's, for that. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Sometimes um, people who are close to us can actually help us, you know, yeah. realize that there's connections that we ourselves wouldn't make, right? For sure. Yeah. I always, I always try to pick out those points because somebody listening to this might have the chance to do that for somebody else. You know? For sure. Like, or we could go and ask people we know, what do you think I should do? And Exactly. Yeah, it's good to reflect on but the social sciences aspect of it I'm, I'm curious about that mm. so was that within the context of the sort of landscape architecture or was it more of a general social sciences type of study that you were interested in it was more at that stage it was more general social science okay um i still wasn't sure what i wanted to do with it i was also interested in some kind of eventually doing some counseling so mm. i was I was also doing a counselling course in the evenings. Right. Um, but I just, I guess at that stage, it was really just deepening my own sort of understanding of the world, uh, probably quite indulgent in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but having not really connected with that at high school, I sort of felt like I was doing that mm. there at, at that stage in my life. But at the same time, I was hanging out with the landscape architecture students and uh, looking at some of the projects that they were interested in mm. or that they were working on and thinking that at some stage I was, I was going to do that. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. But it's, it, I, what I'm hearing as well is that people have been an importance to you, know, like considering counselling or social yeah. sciences. And, and yeah. that's, that's interesting to me because I know what you now consider and you look at and there's definitely a weaving together there of like design and people and how they interact so definitely so what happened next with your 
with your study? Did you do a degree or something? Or yeah, what? I finished a degree in social science, mm-hmm. and then I took a year out. And I, at that stage, yeah, I, I just wasn't sure what to do. And um, the kids were still quite young. Um, I was on my own. I'd separated um, from my husband, and um, you know, it was quite challenging financially. Mm-hmm. So um, I worked for a year, but. Um, I was working at the Littleton Information Centre, actually, at okay. that stage. Yeah. And uh, and again, you know, this is where people are quite influential, was um, working with someone who had just finished the degree. And so um, we used to talk a lot about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, decided that following year just to, to do that. And my parents were very supportive financially during that time as well, mm-hmm. and was able to do a, um, a master's because I'd done the undergrad in oh, okay. social science. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so that was a, a two-year full-time course, but I think it took me about a two and a half years. I spread it out a little further mm-hmm. than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was the focus of that? So the focus was there were core papers, um, and then there was a dissertation. And uh, I was very interested in heritage and how we can tell the stories of our landscape in ways that engage people experientially rather than just so often our interpretation of heritage landscapes are with signs and displays like visual aids and I wanted to do more than um, I wanted to do something that was a bit more powerful and and it was actually quite challenging Mm. so I I looked at um, Te Waihora, Lake Ellesmere, and I looked at, um, so I did a written dissertation, but I also did a major design study. It was my final project for the degree, and that was looking at how we can, um, it was challenging those traditional forms of interpretation and providing this experiential walk along the lake edge that sort of told the, the narratives of Naitahu and the European narratives. Mm. Uh, and in a, in a way that people could experience those stories in the landscape. Right. And I guess it's about giving people access to the landscape itself yeah. so that they can go and experience yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. And wetlands are really subtle places. They yeah. We don't often appreciate their value. So mm. how do you um, draw people to those places, um, tell those stories, and also protect them, uh, the the places at the same time yeah it's a it's an interesting point because like i'm just thinking about like ellesmere and you know driving between here and akaroa we all you know if you're driving that way you see yeah. it off there in yeah. the distance yeah but it's very disconnected yeah in a way you know like you know it's there you know it's huge yeah but you just keep driving because you're stopping for ice cream at little river yeah that's right yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not a very um visible part of our landscape and yes mm. yet it it holds so many important values mm. and I guess that's what I've always been really drawn to is some of those intangible values that um, are so vital to our spaces our public spaces our social spaces yet we don't always see those values so mm. how do we protect them how do we how do we manage them how do we design for them mm. And especially, I'm thinking about the natural world right now and thinking about that particular location. How do you give it a voice to then be able to have a say in its future? You know, because it would be easy to just view it as a side 
it's over there, yeah. you know, yeah. and not really realize the presumably abundance of wildlife. Yes, you know, yes. the 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 both birds and fish and other things that yes. are there as well. Yes, but then also how it itself interacts with the ocean. Yes, you know, which is right there yes. as well. And yes, yeah, it's such a dynamic landscape, as you say, but it's difficult to really appreciate that. Mm. So yeah. I I looked at how um, if you were to design a boardwalk along the edge of that lake, could it be something that um, engages people with the rising lake levels because um, and falling lake levels? Because that lake has traditionally, if it, it's opened, it's opened um, to the sea artificially about three or four times a year at Kaitareti Spit. So big bulldozers come and bulldoze through the spit so that the water can all flow out because there's about 40 streams and rivers that flow into the lake. And if we didn't open it out to the sea, it would flood right back into Halls Hall, back into Lincoln, right up to the Port Hills. Hmm. So essentially... My thinking was, how do you engage people with that dynamic landscape? And so I looked at how the form of the boardwalk could, at high lake levels, be in the shape of um, a uh, walker so that um, you could see the form of the the canoe, Mm -hmm. which was how early Māori came and pulled their walker up to the shore. But then how... Could it also at lower lake levels be in the shape of a fish hook, which showed, which sort of referenced the abundance of wildlife and mm. fish and birds in the lake, mm. at the lake. So um, it's a very subtle uh, sort of response, but um, something that when someone would visit the site at different times of the year or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, different times of the day they might experience something different each time so it was just one of the interventions I yeah that makes sense and you know we use the word design and I think we're probably going to talk about that in a bit but you know that's an example isn't it where you're designing something for an intention that you don't even have to say it and it's it's part of the awareness of a person you know like physically yeah exactly you don't you don't have to give them a pamphlet to say hey, uh, look at the shape of this. We did it in the shape of a walker. No, that's right. It's more yeah. like a subtle, yeah. um, hey, as I'm walking out here, I feel the sense yeah. that I'm on a waka and I'm drawing yeah. up to the shore. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's cool. Is yeah. it, are they going to do it one day? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I would like to dust to, it off and, yeah. and propose it. <laughs> Bring it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So at the end of that sort of study, did you mm. know what you would do next or...? Um, yeah, well, at that stage, I was keen just to get a job and to apply um, what I'd learned in practice. So um, I worked with a private practice for a year before moving to Opus Consultants. So um, I, I was keen to work in public space design and really keen to, um, yeah, just work in a multidisciplinary environment mm-hmm. where there was... Yeah, just so many different disciplines to bring to a project, and uh, so yeah. what sort of projects would they be handling? Like what, what would be a, a typical? I know there's probably never a typical thing, but mm. what sort of things are we talking about? Is it designing spaces? 
Yeah, at that stage I was doing like parks and reserves, okay. um, schools. Um, I guess, um, yeah, just quite a range of different projects. A lot of work for Christchurch City Council. Mm-hmm. But then I slowly um, became involved in landscape conservation plans, so um, which were more written documents, but quite interesting in how they are influential in design. So right. I really enjoyed sort of looking at um, the heritage values of a place and then... So what does that involve? What is a landscape conservation plan? A landscape conservation plan is a document that helps um, councils or clients to um, understand the the heritage values of a place, what happened there in the past that's significant, and then how do we manage that into the future. Okay. So it involves research of the landscape values of a place mm-hmm. and then identifying what if that still exists in the landscape now and then how do we protect that and manage mm-hmm. it. So writing policy for protecting and then, yeah. Yeah, so it would be very specific for that particular yeah, place. Yeah, that place. Like you, yeah, you couldn't copy-paste from another source. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very relevant to yeah. that place, yeah. So I did quite a bit of that work. I became – there's not many people that do that kind mm. of work. So um, I was, yeah, really fortunate to do a lot of work like that for the with the council. Mm-hmm. Um, but then – And is this before the earthquakes or is it after yes. the earthquakes? or? Yeah, yes, what? so that was before the earthquakes. Mm. I started doing that in around 2008. Okay. And then um, then 2012, we – were successful in um, winning the the bid for one of the anchor projects post earthquake um, in Christchurch here, the Avon Atipapa uh, Otagro Avon River Precinct. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was part of the design team working on that project, and it was a, it was a really wonderful opportunity to. Um, do something after the earthquakes. Right. Um, something positive. <laughs> something positive, yeah. But the time pressures were really great. And it was when I really started to think about how effectively people are involved in the design process. Mm. And so that was when I started thinking about doing further study um, on that topic. Um, I'd, I'd been in Norway... No, I went to Norway, that's right, the following year and um, came across an exhibition that looked at the social processes of design and okay. it had it was this exhibition of young designers under 40 who were doing um, really interesting projects with communities. Mm-hmm. And so when I came back, it was just like, wow, how can we do that kind of thing here? And by that stage, we were, um, we had a number of, uh, organizations that were you know grassroots organizations like greening the rubble and Gatfiller who were working with community and um, and sort of testing ideas in spaces and how do we work with community in a more effective in effective ways mm-hmm. um, and yeah so I just thought I really want to know more about as a landscape architect how how is my design expertise uh, expressed? In a participation process, mm-hmm. how how can we be effective in these processes? Because there's certainly after the earthquakes, 
while initially there was a lot of momentum and creative energy from both, um, you know, designers, all different disciplines, um, lots of talk, public talks, um, and then also from community attending these talks, um, but then and then local government put together a wonderful share an idea consultation process where there were so many different ways in which people could take part in having a say about what they wanted post after these earthquakes, which had radically changed the city. Um, and there were all these great aspirations for how can we create this, you know, the best little city in the world. Mm -hmm. But then um, when central government took over, very little of that was taken through. And, uh, and I was thinking, well, how do we work in this context? How do we, what's, what is really important about design? Mm. What do we have to offer? And, and how does that process work? Mm. It's really interesting because I can imagine the temptation would be for architects or for people who design things to be given a brief or go visit a location and then to go off and sit down at their desk and start drawing, you know, or to start designing. Mm. And, um, and then slide it across the table to the client, like, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what you're talking about is really more of an integrated approach where you're involving the local community, getting more information points yes. that then help to guide what ends up being designed. Yes, absolutely. Because people are the experts of their own places. They know way more than we do, and it makes for much a much richer outcome if we can understand the environment from their perspective. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that was one of the key things that came out of my research is that a direct and iterative relationship with between designer and community is so important mm -hmm. to hear those stories firsthand. Yeah. Um, is really, it's really key. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because of the way in which designers think and, um, what what I discovered was that uh, design expertise is. I guess I look I I placed it on a continuum. We can look at design expertise as purely analysis, or we can look at it as actually resolving complex problems. And um, with complex problems, we need a particular way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess. I can give you the analogy of driving a car is probably a really good example of um, how design expertise can work really effectively. So when you first start learning to drive a car, and this goes back to, to literature from human learning in the 1980s. So when you first start to learn to drive a car, you, you are very conscious about everything that you are doing. You follow all the rules. You are, you know, looking at the, especially if you're driving a manual car, um, you know, you're, you're conscious of changing gear, looking in the rear vision mirror, what's going on around you and, uh, but as, and so following the rules, but as you become more experienced, you act more intuitively, you unconsciously know what it is that you need to do in any particular situation. So those rules that you follow so religiously to start with just become very second nature. Mm. And so similar to design, 
the context becomes really important and you select what is significant of a place to adopt in a design and what to leave out. And, um, and so, you know, c complex problems are often termed wicked problems. They're ones that we don't actually know the process to get there necessarily. We don't know what the outcome's going to be. Mm. But designers will typically frame the, the situation and then test ideas to come to a resolution in that context. Mm -hmm. But the context is really important. Mm. And so um, I think what often happens with design is that uh, we, ha we take a very analytical approach and we follow a process where... Um, we go from one step to the next without revisiting and getting the feedback that we need from community. And uh, that's where if we understand the design process and the value that it brings, um, we can resolve we can resolve situations, we can resolve some of the um, less tangible aspects of public space mm -hmm. that um, may, might not be so obvious when we're first looking at them. Yeah, that's great. So in your studies, because you did a PhD in this topic, didn't you? Yes. What yeah. was the, if you can summarize it, <laughs> what yeah. was some of the essence of the, both the research you were doing, but then also some of the conclusions that you came to? Yeah, right. Um, I'm just asking you to summarize like yeah. years of work into two minutes. No, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know it's hard to do, but just yeah, like yeah. what, like well, start. What was mm. the title of mm. your research? How how was that framed? Um, it was um, the t the title of my research was elegance for or by design. Mm -hmm. So um, the. Um, it, it really was looking at how the landscape architect's design expertise is expressed in a part participation process. Okay. And so then what are the key factors that make for a successful design process? Mm -hmm. And one of those key factors is that um, that design expertise rather than design analysis is the framework used for a design process. Mm -hmm. Um, I used the uh, I used a case study to look in detail at how the design expertise was applied in that in a pro in that process. So I chose um, Albion Square in Littleton, and I interviewed the designers, the council, and the community who were involved in that project, and then looked at um, where there were. Um, Places of synergy and where there were places of divergence and views during that process. And um, it became very clear that the decision making that had um, was underlying the process was an institutional one. It was more about analysis than it was resolution and design expertise. And that um, there were, as is often the case with council projects, and there are budgets, there are time constraints. But within that, um, so, so there were, it was basically like a Gantt chart process, and there wasn't the opportunity to revisit um, some of the um, 
some of the issues that had arisen that would have helped resolve the spatial issues of this of the of the place yeah and part of that could have occurred through a direct relationship with the design team mm. so so they're a bit removed from the yeah, process yeah. that's right huh. and i think that's something that's happened i think in the last 25 years the last generation we've seen the rise of um the project manager and mm. which has value of course but often the project manager or a number of other consultants can come between the designer and the community mm. and um, uh, to the detriment of the project I think mm. because as I was alluding to earlier if the designer is um, drawing on other um, it's probably something that I didn't touch on um, enough earlier but the designer, when they are, they've had a number of other experiences in their in their professional life that uh, have given them an understanding of what might be relevant for a particular project in front of them. Mm-hmm. So it's that like driving a car. They've done it so many times. They've got other precedents to draw on that might give them information on how what is relevant in this situation. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and so if a designer is able to have this direct relationship with the community in a particular project, they draw on information from the community, all their lived experiences of that place. They draw on the knowledge they have from other projects they've been involved in that might have relevance for this particular one. Not, this, not the actual place, but the principles of other projects. And that kind of dynamic of community and designer, community knowledge and designer's expertise can really help to resolve the issues within a within a place, mm. um, the spatial issues within a place mm. that can be interrupted by a process that has to follow its rules. Yeah. Well, even the way you describe it, you know, like a project manager, like it, even the title itself mm. has sort of inherent, it automatically I'm thinking about deadlines budgets, yeah. cost overruns, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm managing the project. Yes. Whereas if you, I think what you're talking about is a bit more of a holistic view That's of right. the space, yeah. which is we're looking at this for the decades, for the next 100, 200 years, we want to get it right. Yeah. So it's not so much about like, we've got to come in at this budget, it's we want to actually make a space where people can resonate with yeah. in the in the coming future. Yeah. Um, I, I just did a podcast interview this morning with Stephanie, um, and she's a photographer, and so we were talking about um, locations and how they can actually have energy in themselves, mm, um, which is yeah. kind of a, a really beautiful concept if you think yeah. about it. Like if yeah. you go to Godly Head or somewhere yeah. and you're standing there, yeah. you're looking out at the harbor, you're seeing the clouds rolling in and the storm coming, but it's yeah. sunny over this part. And yeah. like, I guess the point is that everywhere has um, inherent qualities to yes. it. And it's about recognizing those and not, you know, maybe maybe it's not putting in a tall fence over here because that's going to interrupt the view that the residents love looking to the mountains, you know, exactly. or, or something like that, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 for sure. I think the focus becomes less on the management of the project and more on the qualities of that space. The yeah. space, like you say, or the site, is an actor in this process too. Yeah, yeah. 
Mm. Yeah, which is fascinating as well. You know, coming back to the Lake Ellesmere example. Mm, yeah, I was thinking of, and and I'm also really interested in in New Zealand. We're quite advanced in thinking about nature mm. and the fact that we've actually granted legal personhood to the Wanganui yes. River, yeah. to Taranaki Maunga, mm-hmm. you know, to the Te Uruera National Park. You know, like there's concrete steps. And maybe it's just because I'm a lawyer, I'm interested in the <laughs> fact that those those parts of nature now have legal personhood, yeah. which means that they at law exist. You know, as a an a legal entity. Yeah. Um, and anyway, what I'm really wondering is, you know, if you think about a corridor of a river, or the you know, the place where there's an outlet into the ocean, or what if we started thinking about each of these different locations as each of them having their own identity, mm. and as you say, each of them might have a voice mm. or have a, a, a way that needs to be thought through yeah. and recognized too. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's complicated, I guess. but <laughs> It is complicated, but I think there are creative ways as designers that we can integrate this in the design process. So mm. especially if you're working with people who have some of these stories, particularly tangata whenua, mm. who know these stories and can bring those out and... Um, yeah. And, and then we can use them in design. Yeah. So t- give us an example, because I know that as part of your research, or maybe just after it, you actually involve children mm. in the design of a place. Can That's you right. describe that place and what their mm. input was? And yeah. Yeah. What did that mean for the project? Yeah, sure. So um, the project with children um, that I think you're referring to is Place Cadets, and that took place um, at Phillipstown Hub, which is... Um, In central Christchurch, it's the site of the old Phillipstown School um, prior to the earthquakes. Um, And since since it's been the hub there, it's a community space for over 50 groups that use it on a regular basis. Um, There's a school holiday program that's run there each... um, Well, I think it's just recently closed, but while we were doing the project over the school holidays, um, we worked with... 21 children over two weeks and um, we looked at that community space and how we could work with the children to provide a play element for their outdoor play area. Um, So we worked really closely with the staff at the Phillipstown Hub which was absolutely key (laughs) and a lot of fun and um, so we um, the project started by the children working with me to look at the site. We we did a creative site survey and we explored the site through things, spaces, edges, and something else. <laughs> um, <laughs> how how big out. is the site then? Like, and just to, I, I'm not sure I've been there. So yeah, <laughs> right. It? Um, it's like a school, I guess. Okay, um, so and quite large. Quite large, yeah. and yet I guess it's kind of like a quadrangle inside. Um, a group of classrooms. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's probably around 50 or oh, 30 meters mm-hmm. sort of square, the site that we were looking at. Yep. Um, and so the children were encouraged to think about what was missing in that space and what were some of the opportunities. <clears throat> so we sat around a big aerial plan once we got inside and we talked about those things and came up with a brief together. And that became the framework for 
um, what we we were going to design. Mm -hmm. And so over the next few days, uh, the children did sketches and they made models and worked in pairs and then in fours to come up with a response to um, the site mm -hmm. through a through a space that they felt they wanted to play in. And of course, to start with, there were all these initial ideas like, we want a flying fox, we want a swing, we want a sandpit. And then it was just like, okay, so that's great, um, but how, how do you want to play in this area? And, and what are the, some of the things you want to do? And through making, the children were able to articulate some of the ways in which they liked to move and they were able to hear what each other was saying and then comment on what each other was saying and, and to slowly evolve their idea that was in line with their brief, their one structure. And um, we, we, the, the way in which we refined it was that we made a kit set of plywood modules that were able to be constructed at one to 100. My partner, Johnny, has a workshop just around the corner. And so the children visited the workshop and got to see what these big modules would look like. Mm. And then, um, then in their groups, they, like I said earlier, they, um, they honed their design explorations. And then we agreed on one final scale model that we then tested at one to 100 in cardboard outside. And the kids got an idea again about what does it feel like to be in, in this space and where do we want to locate it out here? Um, they also showed their ideas to the trust and um, got feedback from the trust. Um, that's the Phillipstown Hub mm -hmm. Community Charitable Trust. And... Um, Johnny was then able to make the final scale model up into um, life size, which we then installed with the children and their families at an opening ceremony on the Saturday. And, um, yeah, we invited the wider community as well. And that was where the, um, the hub and their existing relationships with the wider community was so important. And how we were able to do a project in two weeks with their relationships with the parents and um, their knowledge of, yeah, who else could help, like local businesses. We had support from um, Hampton's ITM who provided the timber. And um, so really it, it became a real catalyst for wider community engagement. We had a big community lunch that Phillipstown Hub put on. Mm. Um, and I presume that part of the story of this place is now that the children helped us to design it because yeah. it's it's something that they then could use themselves. Yes. You know, rather than it being yeah. come to the opening. Yeah. Here's here's the <laughs> yes, thing that's exactly. that been created. We've designed for you. For you. Yes. It's, it's more this is designed by us, right? That's right. Yeah. So it's more of a collaborative roots yeah. up sort of approach rather than a top heavy this is you know, we know best and this is the thing that we've made for you. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I think the children, as a result, the children have felt valued. They feel a sense of belonging to that place. It strengthened their sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. Certainly their care of the place. Um, I was there a few weeks after we'd finished the project and um, 
uh, the, I, I overheard the children saying that someone had thrown a whole lot of sand into the structure and so they were like quite disgusted and they went out there and were sweeping it all up and, mm. and as one of them walked past after she'd done it, she said, the Imaginarium is clean. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so they had invested in it. it. It's yeah. something that they feel ownership of. They do. And yeah. you mentioned a word before, um, which I'm curious to just explore a little bit, which was elegance, I think. Mm. So, how did you come to that word and what did that mean as part of your research? Yeah. I, there was something about elegance that um, has always intrigued me. And um, what does it mean to you I, then, as a as a word? <laughs> to me, to me, it means I've got the the words of a lot of people who have asked what the definition is right. <laughs> to them. But to me, it means something that's very simple, and yet it speaks of complexity. Mm. And um, when I looked up the definition of elegance in the original Latin, it means to select with care. Hmm. And I really like that that definition because it implies care in looking after. Hmm. But also selecting is that you don't put everything in there. Hmm. You need to really it's about it's about choosing some things over others. And this is what I, um, I guess I was referring to earlier about design expertise. As designers, we don't put everything in. To resolve a space, you have to be selective and responsive to context. Mm -hmm. And um, as a result of that, and this is where I think it relates to elegance, the place becomes more than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. I think um, it does more with less mm -hmm. if it's... If, if decisions are made carefully and with carefully chosen um, elements or response to mm -hmm. a site. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I agree. I mean, I think often in life it's the simpler things that have that element of elegance because you realize mm -hmm. that it took a lot of work to make it that simple. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like <laughs> in some ways the, the more complex something is, the less it's been thought about. Yeah, you know, like yeah, it, exactly, yeah. 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 And I think uh, it's easy to under, to underestimate how important how, how important space is and how it affects how we feel. Mm. And, and so, like, yeah, a lot of thought sometimes goes into places, but it's not always obvious that that, is, mm. that has been the case. Mm. Well, I think, uh, you know, thinking about, gardens and how they're laid out and the architecture that goes into them you can definitely tell that there's a guiding thought mm. when, you, when you go to a well positioned and laid out space and you think you know as you walk around it you can just feel something yeah. in yourself kind yeah of relating to and that yeah. relating and yeah, yeah and, and you're like look at this tree which is really well positioned where yeah. it is and, <laughs> yeah. and look at these um, yeah. you know this part of the garden over here and oh maybe there's a little pond over this part and mm. you can tell that somebody really thought it through mm, yeah. and then but it, often it is they're very simple yeah like but that's the that's the complexity yes. is to make it yes. that simple right that's right yeah. absolutely yeah. yeah that's interesting mm. so these days tell us a little bit about um what you're involved in from because you've you've been working you know as a 
for-profit type of architect, right? Yeah. But you've also, because I know, because I helped you set it up. Yes. <laughs> you set up a charity, yeah. which is then also doing some other work. Can you just tell us a bit more about yeah. what's going on in that space? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, with you, we set up set up Gather Foundation. So our, our vision is to have an Aotearoa where every child and young person is involved in the design of their outdoor space mm-hmm. spaces. And so um, the way that we are planning to do that is to provide educational opportunities for children to be meaningfully involved in the design of these outdoor spaces. Mm-hmm. And um, we've engaged uh, Hannah McKnight to help us with a communications and engagement plan. Mm-hmm. And A former Seeds guest. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yep, yep, she's great. Yeah, she's been super helpful with mm-hmm. that. So that's given us a framework to work to. Mm-hmm. And um, she's helped us to hone um, our goals and and, uh, uh, aligned with that. Mm -hmm. And so our plan from here is to, we're looking to partner with three primary schools over the next two years Mm -hmm. to do something similar um, as we did with Place Cadets um, at Phillipstown Hub, to follow a design thinking process and to create either a small structure or a series of small structures, landscape, small concept uh, mapping process for a school. Um, so, yeah, we're looking for three three schools to um, work alongside with that. And, um, yeah, that's that's our, our plan for the next couple of years. Mm. So um, we're about to launch the website in the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, so we'll be looking to contact schools that may be interested and, yeah, looking for anyone to contact us if they're interested Mm. in taking part. Yeah, that's cool. So the schools um, could be primary schools, could be high schools? Um, Primary schools. Primary schools. Yeah, we're targeting primary schools at this stage. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I wonder if there's any primary schools out there who, you know, because of the earthquakes, there was some spaces that were damaged or whatever and... Yeah, like that would be a natural fit, wouldn't it, to help Definitely. redesign something? I think it's for schools who have a particular need in terms of their outdoor environments. Yeah. I think that will be a key focus for us. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we'd be particularly interested to hear from them. Yeah, mm. great. Well, we'll put this out and we'll see. Maybe you'll get a response. Yeah. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And I, I think even the name, it's interesting hearing a bit of your history because you know your parents and the cadetships they were doing know. You know, like it, is it just a you know recurring name that's come through the generation that's <laughs> a funny thing i hadn't really made that connection yeah. until now yeah but yeah i wonder if underneath you know subconsciously, subconsciously. you know growing up your yeah. parents were involved in doing these types of things and then yeah. now you're yeah you know for sure i think that's a huge thing mm. And I know, you know, we used to go out for Sunday drives and mum and dad, we would be, you know, visiting houses, like looking at houses and mum and dad would be critiquing them. And, you know, I used to think it was so boring, Mm. but then eventually I became part of the conversation. Right. And. Like how you, how would you redesign that or look at that bit that they've put there? Yeah, or I don't like that. I don't like that. And then why, you know, they would say why they didn't like that. Right. um, they've done a great job of that, and I wouldn't. I would hear why that was. I see. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. It's fascinating. The like the spaces that we live in, mm. and 
how do, how are they designed to have the maximum life giving energy giving um, ways of being the house that because you live in it today right the one that you grew up in no my or, parents or your do parents still, still do. yeah when because they designed it do do you see any bits in the house there that you can tell that they were thinking about and that's why they did it the way they did it or or were they so young at the time that they didn't you know it, re- it does reflect a modernist aesthetic you know from the 1960s it is very simple right. and it has you know indoor outdoor mm-hmm. engagement is is really um a big part of the property um i i think one of the things i notice in it is that over the years they've they've enjoyed modifying it for different reasons mm-hmm. um, so that it uh, met their needs at different times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can remember there was three girls, but there was only, you know, three bedrooms. So um, mum and dad put a wall in the middle of one bedroom and then created two desk areas on right. shelf area. And then, <laughs> then since then they've taken that wall out again. And so... They've modified it to suit their needs. Yeah. So a building can be a living organism itself, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, which is a really, nothing is ever permanent. Mm. And I think we so often hold on to our designs as being the permanent thing. Yeah. And I think like Place Cadets, a temporary project can be so powerful, very small, but very powerful in showing us uses of space we haven't thought about previously Mm. and lead to more create momentum and lead to long-term change that's more relevant than we might have thought Mm. if we'd just done this big master plan to start with yeah it's really interesting and this would be a a whole other phd i'm sure (laughs) but thinking about european approaches to building and you know like look at the uk where they're often use stone, you know, or, or heavy materials. Yeah. And, and it's an amazing thing. You can go yeah. into a pub today and it was built in 1583 or something yeah. like, you know, it's been there for hundreds of years. Yes. And like, I literally hit my head on the ceiling because <laughs> the people were smaller then. Um, yeah. but the, but I guess the, the point is that, that the culture of using stone in that way is a more permanent type of culture. And then if you compare it to, say, Pacific Island, where you would be using um, wood, you know, you'd be using um, lighter materials than stone, but also that then leads to less of a permanent place. But this is where it gets interesting to me, Mm. is um, that is a cultural value as well. Mm. Because if you think about Papatuanuku, you know, as, as the earth as being mother earth mm. Mm. and that the the things on top of the earth will come and go yeah. and that they're impermanent yeah. and that this structure is built for a generation and then it's gone forever mm. whereas in the european or western way it's more like we build this big stone mm. castle mm. and it will be there for 500 years mm. um, it's just really interesting to think through how that then affects the people and their attitude to the land itself. Yes. Because if you think about it, if if it's a if we can dominate the land 
by putting stone structures in place that will be there for hundreds of years. It's a very different approach yes. to saying we're light touch. Yeah. We're building a, an impermanent structure yes. that one day will be gone. Yes. Um, and, and it's how you relate to the land itself. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's There's definitely right. a PhD there. There's definitely, <laughs> yes. Do you want to go for it, Steve? I should go leave it for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I agree. That's a really interesting concept of working with interacting with place mm. with materials with um shelter with our landscape and yeah yeah i've been doing a bit of thinking about it because i'm on a trust called the fana whenua whare trust oh. so we're looking at papakainga housing yeah, so right. maori housing yep. and one of the concepts this is with nuk Kurako from um, rapaki yeah and one of the concepts that we've been discussing is that from a Western perspective, if there's a site and say it's on a steep slope, you would go in with your diggers, you would cut into yeah. the earth, you mm-hmm. would remove the land and you would build your structure mm-hmm. out of stone, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas um, uh, maybe a different approach would be to say, well, we're working with the land as it is. Mm-hmm. We're not digging deep foundations because we're not actually, we don't want to harm the land itself yeah yeah yeah. and we're building on the surface of the land which is going to be here a thousand years from now that's right and it's like a completely different mindset shift to go from that like yeah okay you know project manager time yeah Yeah. exactly we're going to dig it up and we're going to do this as opposed to more of the lighter yeah you know we are yeah we ourselves are connected with the land yeah it's a much uh longer term stewardship relationship so yes and thinking yeah. of the land as an actor in that process. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And that's and then Lake Ellesmere, where yep. we started, you know, like yep. that that is an actor in the process as well. Yeah, and, yes. as and a, living th- a living being. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, the fact that I didn't know about the, like, releasing the water out into the ocean, but that in itself is quite interesting yeah. because we, again, are imposing a way on that place like Mm. if the land did back up all Mm. the way to lincoln that's going to affect a lot of people but that's maybe the way it was Mm. you know like yeah yeah it's fascinating yeah well 95 percent of that wetland is gone that's Mm. there's just a small part of it left right yeah so um it's it's uh it's something that's been happening for a long time that opening to Mm. the sea and it's even early Māori used to do it mm. with um, with their core, with their digging stick. Right. Um, and, yeah, for various reasons. Um, but, yeah. yeah, interesting to, to think of the, di- the di- dynamic mm. nature of the landscape. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Well, we've gone in all different directions on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so if people are interested to know more, we'll put a link to the new website. Yep. when it's up and cool, um, send through anything else you want and, yeah, sure. and we can add it people can click and they can yeah. find out more um, but thank you for coming on the show I really appreciate it and it's really interesting to hear your background I loved hearing about your mother and her determination mm. you know, so pass on my regards to her I will I, I can tell that that's then influenced you yeah. and, and your decisions through your life but even, you know, the fact that you went back to do some of this study mm. in your 30s, you yeah. know, that this, this what it, it's not like you had a, a vision at age 18 of this no. is what I'm going to do. No. And yet here we are talking today mm. and you've done your not just a, you know, degree master's, you've actually got your PhD in this. Yeah. And now you're looking at how it can 
actually have a greater impact on the next generations. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I really loved the, yeah, the cohesive nature of this story and really appreciate your sharing it with us. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Stephen. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Wendy. For me, there was lots of things that stood out, in particular, the way that she's been able to shape a career that has also led to charitable aspects and helping out children, and in particular, giving them a voice so that they can be involved in the design process. If you enjoy this, then would you consider telling one other person about the show? Until next time. Mm-hmm.